U.S.-backed Kurdish-led forces poured into the last ISIS stronghold for a final assault tonight to defeat the Islamic State. They rained mortars on ISIS's only remaining territory. The Syrian village of Baghuz is now in ruins. So is the ISIS dream of a caliphate. One of the top Kurdish commanders took us to the front lines here. You can hear the coalition aircraft above. Staying in a single file to avoid stepping on ISIS mines. He's saying that all of the houses around here have been booby-trapped, have been set up with mines. Only a few places that they have cleared are safe to go into. This is one of them. Inside, we headed for the roof. This was an old ISIS field clinic. Now, the Kurdish-led forces have taken it over, and it's their most advanced position. The commander showed me how ISIS was completely surrounded. They say the final push will be over soon. The assault had been delayed while the Kurdish-led forces allowed the wives and children of ISIS fighters to leave. 15,000 did. These tonight were the last to leave, escaping the Islamic State before it's wiped out completely. Kurdish commanders here tell us the remaining ISIS fighters are dug in in tunnels, but that they should be able to root them out within two days. Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. This is an interesting episode for the show. Mainly the people that I have on are from the special operations community, mostly American, some Australian, uh, British, and Canadian as well. Um, I would say at a bare minimum, you're probably the adventurous type, you know, having traveled a bit uh, throughout Asia and Africa. You've written a book called Desert Sniper, uh, you've never served in the British Armed Forces that you're, uh, you've seen combat in the Middle East. Um, my guest for this podcast is Ed Nash. Ed, how's it going, brother? Good, good. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, so you, you have an interesting background. Um, <clears throat> um, but, before, you know, we'll talk about all that. But before we get into some of the work you've done in and around um, combat zones, can we talk a little bit about uh, some of your travels prior to that and, um, you know, what your life was like pre-working uh, with the Free Burma Rangers? Yeah, sure. Um, not a lot to say, I'd say. Um, I was never in the military, but uh, I've always been a bit of a traveler. Um, you know, I think I was like 20, 21 when I first sort of headed off to Asia and, you know, hiking Nepal and up in uh, northwest Pakistan and stuff. This was quite a few years ago before 9-11, so it was a bit of a different situation. Uh, yeah, I traveled around China. Um, later on, I traveled around parts of southern Africa and uh, northern Africa. And I just uh, wonder, you, I suppose. Were you mountain climbing or you were just, like, hiking? Yeah, generally just hiking, although, okay. you know, I suppose you call it scrambling. Uh you go <laughs> parts of Nepal. Um, there's some photos of me sort of hanging off the side of a mountain without ropes, and you're kind of like one of those situations of, yeah, you shouldn't be here. Really, this is kind of dumb. But uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty much, uh, yeah, wherever wherever I feel like going, really. Okay, cool. And then, um, so then you end up joining up with the Free Burma Rangers. Can we talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was in Thailand. That uh, was in uh, 2012, I think. And I'd heard about FBR, Free Burma Rangers, like read articles about them uh, before. And they, they struck me as a really interesting organization. So I think it was uh, 2013. I sort of dropped an email. I was sort of in Thailand. I was like, um, hey, you need help? And they said, yeah. So that's when I did my sort of first volunteer stint with them. And then I um, did a short spell in 2013, went back in 2014, and then 2015, 
Uh, and then I went back in, what was it, 2018? Uh, yeah, 2018. It's all frontier stints. So everything that you've done with the Free Burma Rangers, that is in um, in Burma? Uh, yes, yeah. Um, they do now operate in places like Iraq, Syria. Right. Uh, Somalia, not Somalia, where was it? Sudan. Um, but my, my stuff was all, uh, yeah, Burma. Okay. And and what was that like? You know, what were you doing there? And, and what were some of the things that, you know, you were seeing while you were there? Okay. Um, well, my, my, generally my job was with the information officer. I was an information officer. So what you'd do is you'd get the information coming from the field teams. Um, you'd collate it all compile it and write reports for posting to the web or send it to state department, whoever wanted them. Um, and then field work wise, I'd go into the field and debrief teams. And also I'd help train the field teams. So basically on how to fill in their report forms, what sort of information we wanted, how to stay in communication with us, stuff like that. Okay, cool. Yeah. They're, they're a pretty interesting organization. Yeah, they certainly are. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you get a chance, um, if you ever get a chance to talk to Dave Eubank, I'm sure your listeners would love to hear him talk because he's a he's a founder of uh, Free Bone Range. He's a very interesting guy. Right. Ex Special Forces, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Ex Ex American Special Forces, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, do you want me to explain a bit of the concept behind Free Bone? This is why it appealed to me. Um, Dave's ex Green Beret is it a major. He was a commander, anyway. And obviously the Green Berets' role is, you know, well, they do many things now, but traditionally they are going in behind enemy lines, getting into, like, immersing into the cultures and training insurgents or providing specialist skill sets to insurgents. And Dave took that concept and that training and uh, applied it to training relief teams. So in a lot of ways, FPR works similar to the A-teams the specialization they provide is things like, say, how to you know, report information, gather information, uh, a lot of medical work. That's a real cornerstone of what they do. Um, so they go into the places other people can't and, yeah, just do do uh, the good work, really. Right. And and they've been doing that kind of work um, for, for oh, years. Uh, yeah, a long time now, right? Yeah, uh, 96, I think he started. 96, I think it was. And obviously it started with just Dave and now it's a, 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 it's not a very big organization, but it's a bigger organization. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think one, one of the, um, I guess you can say incidents that took place in the last several years that kind of got them some attention was when, um, I think it was Eubanks and, um, uh, the rescue Ephraim. Yeah, and Ephraim Matos. Yeah, and yeah, they, yeah. Um, Sky was the other guy. Was ex US Marine. Yeah, he, right. he ran out behind the tank and saved the kid. Yeah, that's Dave through and through. Um, yeah, so if you ever get him on, he'll he'll go through it blow by blow with you. He was also coordinating with the American forces, so he got smoke from American artillery. Like, so he was talking to like the American commander, saying, well, "We need smoke. We need it now." They sorted that out, and when it came down, that's when they. Went out and got the kid. So, yeah. Right. And I think um, Matos was shot during that sequence or yeah. right after it? Yeah, he took one in the calf. And uh, uh, on, on the main video you see, I think you can see him get hit. There's another video, which I, I mean, I know everyone pretty well. Um, and I laugh at him. There's another video, I think a French journalist took. And the Abrams over behind, um, it started reversing after he got hit. And Ephraim's... <laughs> You can see him panic, and he's trying to get out of the way. He won't be happy with me talking about it, but uh, he's uh, desperately trying to get out of the way of this, this bloody tank was rolling back over him. You know. Oh wow. Um, yeah, yeah. If you, it's uh, yeah, I laugh about it, and he, he does now. He didn't at the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> were you there during that incident? Like, were you in, in Iraq during that time? Uh, no, I wasn't. I um, that was Mosul. Was I? I was either in Syria. Or it was after I got back from Syria. I can't remember now. Okay. I'd have to check dates. Uh, I think that was. I think that was. I think I was back in the UK at that point. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure when when it happened, but uh, okay. I was either in Syria or just after Syria, and uh, yeah. 
Okay, so the the situation around the fight against ISIS um, was way more complex than most people understand it to be. Um, mm-hmm. I've recently I've recently sat down with a gentleman named Dan Gabriel. Um, he was a, a former um, counterterrorism officer at the CIA and the producer wow. of the film Mosul. Um, and one of the most important aspects, it's a documentary film. One of the most important aspects of it was highlighting the different factions that were working together to defeat ISIS. Um, but you know, there were tensions with, within the groups, but they were still, you know, trying to work together, right, to to, to defeat yeah. their common enemy. Um, you know, one of the most, uh, I'm sorry, the <clears throat> the Kurds are also complex. You know, there are, <laughs> right, yeah. there are various factions within you know the different groups, and you know having worked and served with them, can you speak to any of the the complexities of the relationships there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> I think I've I've said it before. Like, if you put two Kurds in a room for more than five minutes, they'll end up having a row. If you put three Kurds in a room for more than five minutes, you'll end up with a, a thousand year blood feud between clans. Um, they're very fr- uh, fractious. So in Iraq, uh, obviously northern Iraq, which is now yeah, Kurdistan, um, there are two main political parties, uh, the PUK and the KDP. And they are like the Iraqi Kurd. And that, that they've, they fought a civil war back in, I don't know, 96, I think it was, which you know, didn't get any coverage. Um, you've also got things like the PKK, who are the Turkish uh, group, um, Turkish-Kurdish group. Uh, well-known terrorists. I know they're involved in parts of northern Iraq, so I understand. So that's another element. And all these groups, you know, they're quite happy to kill each other. Literally, I mean, it shows how bad ISIS was that these guys all pulled together to fight them. Um, and then in Syria, you've got um, the main Kurdish group in Syria is, well, their military is the YPG, uh, who are well-known. Uh, their political wing is the PYD. And they're a sort of an offshoot of the PKK. They're the same sort of uh, political ideology. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, very, very factional. Right. So the the group of Kurds fighting in Syria, are they do they have any connection or, or allegiance, rather, to the Kurds in Kurdistan? Um, not really. Okay. No, um, they, 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 so like the YPG get on well with the PUK Kurds. They can't stand the KDP Kurds. Uh, the KDP is, uh, what's his name's party? Barzani, who's the president of Kurdistan. Um, so they don't get along with them. There's you know, no, no love lost. Um, but they're all kind of, they all have their own agendas, yeah. Um, right. They're literally like, like one one incident from falling 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 upon each other. Um, and I say it just shows how bad things like ISIS were that they they actually put their bygones you know bygones were bygones and they started fighting them rather than each other. Right. You know? um, yeah. So um, with the the Kurds. So you specifically, you served with the YPG, right? Yeah, that's it. Okay, so can you talk to um, any of that, like maybe how you got started with them, and maybe some of your sort of um, evolution throughout that organization? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was with uh, so early 2015. I was with Free Burma Rangers, and things are quieting down in Burma at that point. Um, they've since flared up and they're pretty looking pretty bad at the moment, funny enough, but uh, they saw quite down. And I was like, okay, I don't need to be here. This is covered. And um, we've got enough, like FBI's got like their things covered and it's pretty quiet. And I've been watching the situation in Syria, uh, like the previous six months, um, because you'd had the battle of Kobani going on in late 2014, where the YPG had been pushed like to, to, to the Turkish border. It was like the final battle. And then the Americans weighed in, mainly with air power, and just smashed ISIS in Kobani, and it turned around. The Kurds had gone to the offensive. So I was like, okay, I'm not really doing anything here. Let's see what's going on in Syria, if I can help there. 
And at that time, the YPG were actively recruiting foreigners. Um, they'd had a few go out there. And one of them, an ex-American service guy, uh, I think Jordan Matheson, I think his name was, he'd set up uh, a Facebook page. And you could literally go onto his Facebook page, message like their uh, coordinator, say, hi, I'm interested in coming out and helping. And they go, okay, book your flight and tell us when you're going to be in Sulaymaniyah uh, in northern Iraq. Someone will meet you at the airport. And it was just that simple. So, yeah, jump on a plane. I was, uh, say, back in the Thailand, jump on a plane from Bangkok and flew to northern Iraq. Right. Oh, and so- it, it is that simple. And people, um, you know, yeah. it's probably something you don't, you don't realize is such an easy thing to do. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was designed to be that easy. Um, at that time, obviously, the foreigners were just sort of coming into the attention of the world media, which was really the whole point for the YPG. Because um, in a lot of ways, the foreigners were a bloody nuisance, quite frankly. They were a pain in their backsides for them. Um, but they knew it got attention in the world media. It kept the, the focus on their fight in Syria, right. what they were doing. So it was very much a propaganda move quite a good move really um so yeah they made it as smooth as possible for volunteers to go out there so it was june 2015 i yeah flew out there and i think by july so end end of june 2015 i was in syria in uh, northeast syria okay and you started working out doing similar things that you were doing for the free bomb rangers with them yeah yeah well that's what i intended to do i must admit um so, obviously, they were very media savvy, but they were they were having problems with their media coordination. You could see that. So, I actually said to them, listen, I, I can do media coordination. I can be your press contact, whatever. You know, you, you're getting inundated with requests for interviews or information, whatever, and you need an English speaker to do that, ideally. I can do that. So, I went out there and uh, met their guy who was there, like their one English-speaking media guy, and he was like, yeah, fantastic. I need you, but... Got to go and uh, deal with something else. Can you wait around in this particular base in northeast Syria for me to get back? And I waited and waited and waited. And, yeah, uh, went off to Sirin. The Battle of Sirin was just finishing. So I got shipped down there and saw the end of the out guarding the school. And I got stuck on the banks of the Euphrates for a couple of weeks guarding them. Where we pushed, where we pushed ISIS back across the river, and then I ended up in um, what they call the sniper unit, the sniper tabor. Tabor is like a platoon, um, and I ended up in there with another foreign volunteer who was going back, who was an ex-serviceman. And he said, "You, you fancy coming with me to this?" I was like, sure, I'm not doing anything here. So, yeah, ended up in the snipers for best part of a, a year, I suppose. Okay, and your your entire time uh, working as a sniper with the white, um, uh, working there, sorry, um, mm-hmm. was all in Syria? Yes. Okay. Yeah, all in Syria, yeah. The only time you went into Iraq was um, when you were leaving, like, leaving the country, obviously. Did you get the flights from uh, northern Iraq. Right, so, when you're on your way out, right. Yeah, that's it. Um, so, yeah, all in Syria. Um, so... Most of it, as, as usual, is just, you know, the sniper to I was with, we were based, what is, um, well, in Kurdish, it's Serikani, uh, in Arabic, it's Rasalin, I think it's called, which is in the northern Turkish border. So most of the time, you're just sitting around, like anything else, you're just sitting around waiting, you know, waiting for orders. Um, but then when you get deployed out on operations, when we were actually on the offensive, then, um, yeah, you get put out with whatever unit you're going to be supporting that particular day and off you went. Okay, so I know Kurdish fighters um, in Syria uh, who served in some capacity along American and British Special Forces. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you come across um, any Western uh, teams while you were out there in the the fight against ISIS? Yeah, quite a lot. Um, uh, It was quite funny, actually, the relationship that the foreign volunteers in the YPG ended up, I'd say, getting with most of the special force teams. So the first team I came across were the French guys, and that was in, 
October, I think, 2015, November 2015. Um, uh, we were driving on Al Hall. And the French guys were the first SF guys I came across, and they were flying like a um, tactical drone, like a little, well, a little uh, quadcopter type thing for reconnaissance. And all the SF guys were the same. When you first came across them, they were very like, whoa. Right? They, they were, you know, we're not, they, they didn't want foreigners sometimes from their own countries <laughs> hanging around on what's, uh, you know, SF missions. Right, right. But a lot of the foreign volunteers, we spoke Kurdish because <laughs> we were living with the Kurds. And it wasn't unusual for SF guys to seek you out and say, hey, um, can you give us a hand with this? <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like there was one uh, particular episode <laughs> when we later on next year, it was uh, when we were going to Man Beach, so June 2016, I think. When we were crossing the river, there was like one little ferry. Uh, yeah, um, like a I don't know, like an old Soviet pontoon ferry, and the SF guys were running it. And there was an American uh, SF guy. He, he was desperately trying to do traffic control, but every time the ferry pulled up, the Kurds would just sort of all like lunge forward, blocking the road in their vehicles. So I, I ended up giving him a hand for a bit. Um, I think I made a note. Of it. I think it's in the book actually. They, he'd done a special language course, and they taught him the wrong type of Kurdish because there's like seven types of Kurdish. Oh, that's funny. So I was like, and yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was like, no, bro, I'll give you a hand here. Eh? But yeah, I mean, it was, um, yeah, we got, I'd say you get, we got on quite well with them. Um, for example, like, uh, the British guys, uh, I'd give them a hand. Um, they were up on a grenade launcher. I had an automatic grenade launcher on their, one of their pickups. And the Kurds are shouting them for fire support. And they're like, well, where are we shooting? And I'm saying, well, they're saying shoot beside the mosque. They, well, they want to shoot the mosque. No, no, they're saying shoot beside the mosque. And I'm talking to the Kurds going, what do you want? They went, yeah, yeah, shoot beside the mosque. Like, okay, yeah, shoot beside the mosque. So, you know, <laughs> you, you, you help where you could. Um, and other things as well, like intel gathering. We tend to wander around picking up what you could. And then you pass it on to the Kurds. But, you know, you'd also pass it on to SF teams and that. Because uh, especially things like Dash IDs, uh, ISIS IDs. Right. Uh, you quite often find passports and stuff, so you know, take a few shots and give them to whoever whoever was around. And uh, I'm, I'm, I hope it was appreciated. We, you know, we were all, uh, as far as we were all concerned, we were there to you know, fight ISIS, and we weren't interested in factionalism. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to run across the French guys. I say you always get a cup of coffee out of them, which is always nice. So <laughs> always, always appreciated. Yeah, right. Brit guys gave me a whole box of MREs once, which was very much appreciated because. <laughs> we were pretty short on food. So, yeah, you never turn an MRE when you're hungry. I know that. Um, yeah. So. so when you got, it was, uh, interesting. When you got into the, the sniper unit, did you have to go through, like, some schooling and stuff like that? Uh, barely. I mean, I wouldn't even say so. I mean, because um, our, our main government was the Dragunov, and it's, it, is, it is designed for them. Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant design weapon for what it is. It's... It's designed to be given to a, you know, a Russian peasant kid and a handful of rounds to go, right, this is how you do it. Yeah, now, you're, you know, now you're a sniper. Bye. And that's pretty much all we got. Um, I think I've got my dragon off. I think if I put if I put 20 rounds for it over a month before I saw any action with it, I'd be surprised. It's probably less than that. Mm. Um, I got some pointers from, obviously, this, the other the, – the, the guy I went with, the Kiwi ex-serviceman, he, where well, yeah, he'd been a shooter, and he like, explained some stuff to me. But it's a very simple weapon. Um, you don't have to worry about mill dots and stuff like that. They did have some more complicated stuff, like some actual proper sniper rifles, like uh, TRGs. But that was for like the, the guys who knew how to use it. Um, the Dragonov, they call it sniping, but we were actually more like uh, DMRs. Right, you know, right. Uh, yeah, and a lot of our job would be providing overwatch and covering fire for infantry units that were going into the attack. That was our main role, rather than you know sitting up in a position covering it for days and taking a shot. Right, right. And that did happen, but generally it was like, yeah, you're supporting this unit, off you go, and that'd be the days fighting. Um, so in terms of training, I'd say minimal. <laughs> Right, minimal, none to minimal, yeah. 
So can you talk about um, some of the fight against ISIS, maybe um, share a story that you know comes to mind? Before we get back to the podcast, I'd like to read a message from this episode's sponsors. Did you know that William Taft invented the treadmill? Or that Napoleon loved musicals? Or that Elvis wrote the Brady Bunch theme? Did you know that the previous three statements are all false? Regardless, we have your new favorite podcast. History or His Story is the new podcast from the Bramble Jam Podcast Network. It combines the love of history with the fun of a game show. It's history, camaraderie, and the idea of two truths and a lie all rolled into a podcast. Dan is a former high school principal and a 15-year high school history teacher. He takes this background, does the research, and tells his two best friends three themed stories from United States history. One of the three stories is completely made up. His two buddies, along with the listening audience around the world, has to guess which story is his story. Whether it's the Wild West, the Roaring Twenties, sports, pop culture, or major wars, you'll laugh and learn at the same time, listening to history or his story. So if you're anything like me and you enjoy learning about history, whether that's reading or listening to an audio podcast or audio book, you're really going to enjoy this. Um, it, it's challenging. It's done in a way that is engaging and it's fun. So I highly recommend you check this out. You can join in on the fun by listening and subscribing to History or His Story wherever you're listening to your podcast or head to historyorhisstory.com. Historyorhisstory.com. And now we'll get back to the podcast. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit, it was quite a lot of action. Um, when I think of it, I mean, it actually, this came out when I wrote the book because uh, I wrote the book and I kept the log. And especially like the last battle I was in, Manbeach, was pretty, pretty full on. And there was whole days where I just, there were several days where I just wrote, oh, I nearly got it today. And, you know, as in, I nearly got killed. And I'm like, what happened? <laughs> which which time was that? Because they sort of all blurred in the water. You know, was it the sniper or was it the mortar or was it what happened or the machine gun? Or, um, but the one that I do remember very clearly was uh, there was uh, – it all got screwed up, unsurprisingly. So we were on um, in a building, and there was me, another sniper, uh, the, the sort of immediate unit commander who was Yepaja, which is the women fighters, her uh, – her radio guy, and there was the commander of the anti-tank unit. So there's like five of us, and we were asleep on this roof. And in front of us, an infantry t- uh, uh, platoon had taken a house in, like, in, a, in amongst this olive grove, and they were like the front line, and we were behind them. And at some point in the night, command had decided this unit was too exposed, they were too far forward, so they pulled them out. And they didn't tell us. So, you know, we just quietly slept through the night and got woken up at dawn by, uh, well, I got woken up by someone, <laughs> I was quite lucky, miserably, he, uh, they, they'd taken over this house that overlooked us then, where this other unit pulled out, and uh, I got woken up by a line line of bullets getting machine gunned up beside me while I was sleeping. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of what I said, it's all... Um, so you, and it all went. You guys became went. the front line after they pulled back. Basically. Yeah, yeah. The five of us were the front line. So uh, yeah. So the commanders obviously on our radio screaming. Um, I went down to the stairwell with my. I had a dragon of an AK, and I'm then and ISIS. I'll give them their due. When they were good, they were very good. Like there's some very good guys there, and it was a textbook. <laughs> I look back in the mind right now. At the time, it was like, oh, we're in deep trouble. Um, textbook fire maneuver. They came to this olive groove and they just lighting us up, and we're shooting. We're all shooting back and just getting a wall of fire in return. And uh, and I must admit, I thought, well, oh, this is it. Like they got to the edge of the olive grove, they're about fifty meters away, I suppose, from a certain point. And they, they're busy. They're, they're coming through to get us. And uh, and I thought, oh, this is it, right? You know, get ready. And I run up on the roof. Uh, just like say to the commander, like you've got to get help now because like, I'm I'm going to go down and go out the door and just hit them as they try and come in. Really, that was all I was thinking. And as I got on the roof, a, a bomb come down, 
and uh, well, it was the American uh, Intel people. They'd been listening to the ISIS Amir on his radio. They triangulated him. And the first bomb I didn't see, I, I felt the heat and obviously the light. And it's such a weird sensation. Um, and it all sort of slowed down. I remember looking round. It was all like in treacle. And I saw the second bomb falling into the flame. And this is probably only it's probably only a few hundred meters from us. Um, and saw that other, and I remember it quite distinctly. It was white with green writing. That's what I remember. And it fell into the explosion and went off. And that broke them. Um, you know, they, they turned around and we just sort of laid into them as they ran. But, yeah, I remember that fight to the day I die, I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah. yeah. It was close, that one. <laughs> right. And, and um, yeah, that's interesting. So, the you know, they, they listened to this guy over the radio and yeah. then dropped a bomb yeah. on his position. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that, and they... And, and they say, like, we heard from the uh, American SF guys, I think, late that day, because we got pulled out. And I was a Brit guy, so actually I ran into them. And they're like, yeah, yeah, told me what happened. I went, yeah, yeah, they got him all right. Uh, he went offline. I went, yeah, I'm glad he did, because we were about to get it. Right. Like, it, was, it was close, yeah. <laughs> we were about to get overrun. Um, but, yeah, yeah, that was that particular part. But there, it, there's quite a lot of, quite a lot. The other one was uh, V-beds. ISIS love a V-bed. Saw plenty of them bloody things, um, yeah, and they'd armour them. Those are really dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Um, my first one was a Hummer, and it'd been armoured. It had a big hump on the back where they filled it with explosives. It was armoured, and we, uh, and it came at us, and we just lit it up. And one of the other snipers, uh, he was the commander. He had one of the Kurdish-built fifty cals. They called them Zagros rifles, and he hit the tire and stopped it dead. And uh, then we just laid into it, and it went up. And, whoa. yeah, I don't know how much explosives there was on it, but it was like a bloody, uh, what you see in the movies, like a nuclear bomb, you know, this mushroom cloud went up. Just knocked us all flat. Um, yeah, fun games. Yeah, I remember watching a video. Um, it was from Syria. I forget, I forget where it was, but uh, a V-bed had gone off, and you just see the concussion, the, the blast of the concussion. Yeah. And it's yeah. just like, holy shit. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, those things. They, I mean, they, they just got they got stupid big by the end of it. Um, I saw one with a whole truck and they'd armored it up, and they took it out with a javelin. Luckily enough, but that mm. thing, a picture of the, of the cloud, you would you think it was like a, you think it was a fairly big like a Moab type thing or something. I don't know, just massive like this right, blast, right, right. Big this massive cloud. Yeah, just huge, like tons and tons. So yeah, they um, they didn't mess around. Um, it makes me laugh. Have you seen this footage that's come out of Syria recently of uh, the Syrian army tank getting chased by the rebel APC? Mm, I have it's, not. It, it went kind of viral, but it's quite amusing. There's this Syrian tank and, um, and a, uh, one of the uh, Idlibi rebels factions who are sort of like, I don't know, Al-Qaeda-ish. Uh, they come storming out in this AP, so it's a M113. And they, they ram the tank. And everyone laughs at the Syrian tank because he panics and tries to drive away. Mm. And anyone who doesn't know goes, oh, well, why, didn't, you know, why didn't they try and fight? Yeah, cow was running away from it. It's an unarmed APC. And everyone who's been to Syria, yeah, they thought that was, <laughs> they thought it was <laughs> full of boom. That's why they were trying to run away from right, it. Right, exactly. Because he charges straight into them. They must have thought you know, their days were over. So right. I have a bit more sympathy for that tank crew. <laughs> Right, and, and you know that's that's yeah. interesting. People are just watching it. Most of them probably have never been to the Middle East or served in any type of combat or no. anything. Right? Yeah, and he's quite impressive. You know, the guy comes out in a basically unarmed tin can and charges a battle tank. You go, okay, it's pretty brave. But right, right. I suspect I suspect the battle tank. They thought, yeah, that thing's got like you know a couple of ton of high X on board. hundred oh, yeah. percent. Yeah, yeah. So run away, you know. <laughs> so I don't blame them. Right. Yeah, that's 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 crazy. What um? Okay, so you were with the um, the Kurds for sort of multiple trips out there. Yeah. So so I went out there in uh, June 2015. Uh, I went. I came back to the UK in December 2015. I uh, had Christmas at my folks and then went back out in January 2016. I was out there until 
think it was the 1st of August I got back to the UK in 2016, yeah. So two trips. Okay, and so 2016 was the last time you were there? Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, the uh, the situation in the UK legally has changed and is permanently changing. So it's like when I got back in August 2016, I was arrested and uh, put on sort of a police... They don't call it house arrest, but that's effectively what it is. So I'm right. on house arrest for five months. Um, yeah, and now it's sort of now the situation legally is even more negative. Um, right. Is that due anyway, to the terrorist attacks that took place in the last uh, year or so? You know. I, yeah, I, I think no. I honestly, I think it's political, and I think it's um, Turkey. That's what I think is mainly about. I think. Brits, the YPG, because it's like links to the PKK. Um, Turkey certainly considers the YPG as part of the PKK. That's that's their attitude. I don't agree with that, but that's the Turkish attitude. And obviously, Turkey's Turkey's a trading partner, a NATO part, right. partner. So for the British uh, government, I think Brits volunteers going out there to do whatever. Most, I mean, there's quite a few out there doing rebuilding work on that. I think it's a uh, a problem the British government would rather not have, and as a result, they use legal means to, you know, enforce that particular bit of a that that bit of I don't know legislation right. or that one. Well, yeah, that sort of highlights some of the the complexity of that as well. Aside from oh, all yeah. the different factions, you then have a member of NATO with a, a sizable military who has their own stake in, in whatever is taking place and they have their perspective and, Absolutely. you know, they want things done their way to benefit them, of course, you know, in their own interest. And um, so it's, it's really tricky. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and really it's sort of, it's just sums up Syria, like the whole war. I mean, I remember when I was out there, that was, it would have been the year 2015, there was a newspaper article, and I don't know if it was Washington Post or whatever, and they pointed out that the YPG Kurds were fighting against the FSA in what is well, where the fight is now in Idlib. And the YPG Kurds were being sponsored by the Pentagon, and the FSA were being sponsored by the CIA. So they wrote this article about, okay, so we have the CIA funding one side in this war and the Pentagon side funding another side in this war and they're fighting each other. Right. So and, and that's what is going on, you know? It's right. Like, and and that just, it's such a fluid type of um, situation, exactly. right? Like, yeah. you know, maybe they'll give uh, weapons to one group and they're fighting ISIS, but then next week they're fighting somebody else, you know, and they're using those yeah. same weapons. So, Yeah, I mean, I think that's what happened with the CIA program with right. the Free Syrian Army, as they were called. I mean, they pretty much just Transferred to Al Nusra, who are Al Qaeda in uh, in Syria, right. um, or switched to ISIS, even yeah, even um, so, yeah, it's it's yeah, fluid, yeah, day by day. Um, and I had that myself. Um, we just about to start one campaign. I think we should early, and we were all sort of lagered up. We were camping just like the night before we started the attack, and the local. Sheikh came in with his bodyguard, and he just switched sides and joined the uh, other. Or it was then the, came the Syrian Democratic Forces, and they all got out of these out of their pickups, and it, it was it was. I, I laugh about it now, but everyone turned and looked at their gun because all our guns were stacked. Because these guys got out and they were ISIS, you know, and that's what they'd been up until that day when they switched sides. You know, they were the local tribe. He thrown in with ISIS because they were the, you know, they were the dominant power and he was looking to protect his people. And when it was obvious that ISIS were on the way out, he switched sides to the Syrian Democratic Forces. And yeah, these guys hadn't had a chance for a, a, a shave and a change of uniform yet. So, right. So, right. Yeah. Fluid. Very fluid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, in, in a lot of situations, like just how you described it, I mean, you, you can't even blame people, right? Because, um, no. No, no. Um, they live there. Right. You know, they don't really care who's passing through. He's just like, yeah, look, leave us alone. What? And especially for like someone like the local shack, he's got to protect his people, his tribe. Right. So he's like, okay, what's what's best? You know, he's a, he's a balancing act for these fellas, you know. 
I think I think we're seeing it in. It's always been the case. I think in Afghanistan. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, the Americans, the Brits, were leaving at some point. Everyone knew that the moment we went in. So they're like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll work with these guys, but we're not going to get too in deep because we'll have to deal with whoever's actually in charge when they clear out. Right. <laughs> it's practicality. Right. Right, and it, it it makes sense. And I think if um, you know, if if somebody found themselves in that type of situation, they may do the same exact thing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, right. um, especially when you're dealing with foreigners. I mean, it's how you, uh, you know, Afghan's a great example. Uh, America's gone to Afghan, been there for years and years, but the Afghans always knew that America and NATO were going to leave one day. We're not moving in. You know, no right. one's no one's flocking to buy you know real estate in. Kandahar, are like, <laughs> uh, so you know they're like, okay, well, what how, what can we get out of these guys while they're here, basically? Yeah. yeah. So, so in the summer of um, 2017, I was in Japan uh, just for a couple of weeks, and then um, it was I don't I think it was like midnight uh, when a message came through uh, about a guy who's a ex American infantry guy. Um, and he he was last fighting in Iraq with the Kurds, and at this point, no one knew where he was. So uh, obviously, you know, you think maybe he was killed. Um, so this small group that I'm a, I'm a part of, uh, everyone's sort of starting to scramble to try and find this guy. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm reaching out to everybody I know in Iraq. I'm hitting. I'm, talking to people in Baghdad or, or Beale and um, uh, the last that we had heard about him was he had he was leaving the battlefield um, right. so then it turns out uh, he had he had actually left and he got on a flight and once he landed in the US um, Homeland Security took him into custody and I think he was in custody for like I don't know 24 hours or a little more than that something like that um mm-hmm. And uh, and that was a rough experience for him, but uh, you you've had, like you said before you've had an experience with the British police and um you know that it's interesting because I remember seeing people criticize the British government um or, or maybe it wasn't the British government I, I don't know maybe it was some Western government for allowing people who had gone to Syria and Iraq and fought with ISIS to come back into the country. Yeah. Uh, but then yeah. arresting someone who fought against ISIS. So that's kind of weird. Um, I think in this country, I think for ISIS fighters, they tend to pick them up. Right. I think in Scandinavian countries uh, and possibly Germany, there's cases of these guys who've come back and just sort of slot back into their society. Um I, yeah, I have quite strong opinions about having seen what ISIS do. Um, but yeah, um, what happened was it, it's kind of a strange situation. So obviously I came back Christmas 2015 and had no problem um, to the extent of when I came through British customs, I was like, okay, I don't know how this is going to go down. Um, I'm just going to be honest. And so got to the guy and he was like, you've been in Iraq. Why were you in Iraq for six months? I went, I wasn't. I was in Syria. And he looked at me and went, what were you doing in Syria? I was with the YPG. I was fighting against ISIS. And he went, oh, well, welcome home. Now, <laughs> um, the next time I came back, so six months, and uh, also when I was back, um, special branch who are, I don't know what the equivalent FBI, I suppose, not quite, but anyway, intelligence sort of cops. And military intelligence as well. They, they came and talked to me about Syria and like, okay, uh, we know you're going back. Not a problem. Can you just like keep us in the loop? Because I'd been filing reports, uh, well, writing reports and sending them to whoever wanted them, journalists like Dave Eubank, whoever would be interested in Syria. Um, I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. Yeah, cool. Put you on the mailing list. So I went back in January 2016, come back August 2016, and I knew it. I knew the situation had changed. Like the, the government had said, "Right, we're not having this anymore." And yeah, I got arrested when I came back. Um, they were arresting everyone. I'd say I got off comparatively lightly. Some of the guys got messed around for like a whole year, and we're talking about 
okay, you have to sleep at the same place for that whole, like the hotel we sell you. Otherwise, um, you have to report into the police station. Some guys every day, I had to report in uh, once a week. So I had it easy, really. And, I, and you know, they take away your phone and your laptop and anything like that. Um, they raided my parents' house. Uh, and, yeah, so five months and that was it. I, I, okay, yeah, that's it. I'll go away. Uh, but some of the guys, especially the ex-military guys, they got messed around. They still get messed around, quite frankly. Um, and is, yeah, is, is uh, that just because they were in the military? The military guys, particularly the ex-SF guys, uh, mm. obviously, because they're, they're going basically, they get pulled in by their former colleagues, and it's like, okay, what you know, what the fuck have you taught those idiots? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, we, we, we're doing the training over there. We know what we're teaching them. What have you taught them? It's like nothing. To be fair, generally the YPG had very little interest in learning from foreign soldiers. They have their way of doing it. Right. And there's, I think maybe that's changed now that they've actually got military missions from like American Special Forces doing proper programs. But every vet I know who went out there, no matter their experience, was normally – uh, disabused and uh, ended up upset that the Kurds were like, "Yeah, well, we know what we're doing. We don't. You can't teach us anything. We've been fighting for years." Yeah. Okay, whatever. Um, yeah. So SF guys. Yeah, a friend of mine actually. He had a job in Australia, so he came back a couple of years ago. Flew out to Australia last year. I think November. Actually, Papua New Guinea. So he went through Australia, and Aussie. The Australian police seized his phone. And, Took his some like yeah, messed him around uh, on the grounds that he'd been to Syria in the past. So, yeah. Okay, so l- let's talk about your book. Um, uh, when did you release it? Uh, when did it come out? September 2017? 2018. 2018, I think. 2018, yeah. um, I should remember that. Yeah, because <laughs> I wrote it. Yeah, I wrote it in 2017. That's right. Okay. Um and as I say, what it was, was I, I was writing reports and keeping a journal. And I sort of poo-pooed the idea of doing a book. But then, <laughs> see, if I've got a, an academic background, it's in military history. And there's a few other people who've written books, which are, quite frankly, I know, just bullshit. So I was kind of professionally offended, if you like, <laughs> that these people were writing books I knew were nonsense. And that was how people were going to think the war was. So yeah, specifically about the war in Syria or in Iraq. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a few people who've written books. So, don't be wrong. Some guys I know have written books. They're good guys, and yeah, I'm sure what they've written is great. But there was some who huh, were, should we say, well, let's be fair, media whores when they were out there, and yeah, they wrote books, and I'm like, yeah, I know, you, yeah. But there's one great case. I was talking to one of the British SF guys time and she's a danish girl um and a newspaper we, we got it on the on the internet they managed to get internet and uh she had an interview with a british newspaper I and mean, it's like yeah she's out there she's killed 200 isis mm. and it says i went we went well i don't know when she, when she got time to do her hair and make up for the photo shoot because <laughs> i haven't seen 200 isis out here let alone killed 200 right. of them <laughs> but when she finds the time quite frankly it's like yeah that, well, that's a, that's a classic example. You get these stories, you're like, that's just crap. And I know that's crap because I was there. So right. <laughs> you see it time again. So I figured I'd write a book and, you know, people can believe it or not. I don't really care. I know I know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Okay. And where's the book available? Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Um, in the States, I don't know if there's any bookstores in the States, but it's certainly on Amazon.com. It's on some bookshelves in uh, bookshops in the UK, I know. It's out in Polish. It's out in Italian. Nice. Um, yeah. yeah it's, you're never going to get rich writing books. I've learned that lesson, but, you know, that wasn't <laughs> like, So. Okay, um, awesome, yeah. man. And have you, like, been involved with the Free Burma Rangers in recent years, or are you completely uh, kind of... No, started? yeah. I went back. Uh, <laughs> I'm being nagged to go back right now, funny enough. Um now, I went back in 2018 and did another volunteer stint. The problem with Freeburn Rangers is all voluntary. Right. So you have the money behind you before you can go out there. Um, so I went out in 2018, and that pretty much was the book money gone. Um, 
did, did quite a fair spell out there with them, with them then. That was all in, in, in Burma. Uh, did a bit of work with Ephraim. Um, he set up his own uh, relief organisation, so I helped him with some logistic stuff and assistance on the uh, uh, stronghold, stronghold relief. Um, so I helped him set up his Burma operation there. And, yeah, um, I was asked to go back by Dave to go to Syria. And I said, I can't really because the British government's sort of clamping down. Um, so I, I, I didn't um, kind of I don't know if that was the right move or not. But, uh, yeah, they're asked, they've asked me recently to go out and do a training now, but I can't. I've got no money. So, so uh, yeah, I, I think maybe uh, I've got a job coming up once that finishes in October. Maybe I'll go out for next winter, but we'll see what, what the situation is. And did you meet Ephraim um, doing free Burma Ranger work, or did you meet him in Syria, Iraq? I met I met him, uh, yeah, uh, free Burma Rangers. So he, uh, I was at F, uh, free Burma Rangers in in uh, Thailand, and he came in for a visit. Um, this was obviously after his book had come out and everything. He was setting up stronghold and looking at setting up a Burma operation. So, yeah, he sort of recruited me, and I gave him a few, I worked for him for a few months and gave him a hand setting it up. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that's where I met him. Right, and and for people who are listening who might not remember, I've, I've had Ephraim uh, on the podcast before. Um, he was a former Navy SEAL, and he had gone over uh, a couple of times, I think, with the Free Burma Rangers, and then particularly what we spoke about in the beginning with that yeah, video yeah. clip where he, um, where they rescued this girl uh, under fire and he had gotten shot. Um, but I, did he get shot off of that main clip? Like the, the main clip that wasn't of him getting shot, right? I, I think the main clip, if you play it long enough, you do see him get shot. Okay, okay. Um, it like, yeah, yeah, but, but it's only uh, the only video I've seen the longer bit where I'll say where... Uh, it's a, it's a bit further away and it's a different angle when the tank starts backing up um, because normally the clip the clip you see normally cuts off with Dave getting back to the behind the tank with the kid right because um, obviously that's the story um, and I think it was just after that that everyone got shot um, he was little, he was falling back behind the tank as well and he, he got, took one in the calf right um, but yeah yeah they were bloody lucky a lot of them to be honest <laughs> but, yeah uh, it's not fun man. <laughs> yeah. it did the job um, yeah, no, good guys, all of them, good guys. So do you have any, um, like any social media or anything that if, if there's anyone listening who wants to sort of follow you, they can go to do that? I'm on Twitter, uh, it's at Ed Nash Wandering. Um, it's normally just me ranting about crap going on, really. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's about all I do, really. Um, okay, cool. And yeah, that's it, um. So, yeah, if anyone wants to see what I'm ranting about today, feel free. <laughs> I tend to, I think I tend to bore people with my ranting. So. <laughs> All right, cool. So it was, um, you know, it was great talking to you. Uh, it was, like I said in the beginning, you know, usually I'm talking to military, ex-military, something like that. Um, yeah. But it's, it's just interesting because there's been a lot of, you know, Westerners, heading over there to fight and, and things like that so it's it's cool to get different perspectives and um, you know I appreciate you coming on here no thank you very much for the invitation I really uh, really enjoyed it I really appreciate the opportunity thank you um, I'll say if you got a PO box I'll send you a copy of my book if you like <laughs> oh yeah I would appreciate that for sure sure man okay well um, drop me a line with your PO and I'll That's send it over podcast.
Thank mm-hmm. you.